What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you the throwback episode uh, with Dave Martin Swagger and your co-host Pat Sheehan here. Uh, We're going to talk about a couple of TV shows, a movie, a couple of music uh, projects, but Dave, I wanted to start first. What's up with the background today, dude? Technical difficulties in quarantine, my guy. It's not what you want. Trust me. <laughs> no, I mean, you never want te- technical difficulties, but especially in quarantine. Uh, oh, we all have enough on our plates. So um, if you want to support us, you want to make Dave feel good, uh, hit that subscribe button on YouTube.com slash NostalgiaPod or uh, go to SoundCloud.com slash NostalgiaPod to follow us any way you want to. Um, and also you can follow our Nostalgia Best of 2020 playlist if you search just that, Nostalgia Best of 2020 on Spotify. Give us a follow there to stay up to date with all the best music. And I'm wondering, Dave, if Dorian Electra's new project, My Agenda, is going to get a song on this playlist because uh, he's a fairly new artist, you know, dropped his first album, Flamboyant, last year. I'm saying he, and I recognize I'm using the wrong pronouns, actually. He is, uh, they are a uh, uh, artist who identifies as gender fluid and queer. Uh, They use they, them pronouns. Dorian's album, Dorian Lecture's album, My Agenda. Good, bad, where are you at with it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so this kind of snuck up on me. Didn't realize this was coming out. I had been kind of waiting for this because I saw the love for Dorian's album last year, Flamboyant, and wanted to, you know, get in on that. So then when I saw this new album was coming out, I listened to Flamboyant this weekend, right into My Agenda, first time listening to Dorian at all. And I will say I like Flamboyant more, but I think they both albums, both short listens, both quick listens have those qualities that Dorian's quickly kind of made a name for themselves with, namely that quirky out there, like electro pop, bubblegum bass music, very much in the realm of 100 Gex, which would make sense because Dylan Brady is on four of the tracks on my agenda. So, you know, it's, uh, it's that weird out there stuff. Uh, and, you know, it, that, that means it's going to be good, bad, in between. It's going to be all over the place. And I think that's what you get even on like a 25-minute listen. Yeah, it, you know, Dorian is right around our age, actually. He's 28, I believe. And uh, they're a uh, very interesting artist because, like you said, they're very gex and they have that chopped and screwed type feeling to their songs. It feels very millennial, millennial, almost even younger than him, like Gen Z-ish, where it feels like some songs are four songs thrown together. You know, it'll go from like a pop, electro pop song to a metal song to like an uh, R&B type outro, uh, he'll, you know, they'll, they'll be rapping at points, they'll be singing at points. It's really all over the place. And uh, I actually think there's some really great moments on this album, but then there's some real clunkers or, or songs that fell flat or just did not work at all. Um, why don't we start with the, the stuff we liked? What, what songs or what moments really stood out to you? Yeah, for me, that's pretty clearly uh, Sorry Bro, I Love You, which is just a straight Gex song. It's produced yeah. by Dylan Bray. That is a straight Gex song. That would fit right in on a thousand Gex 
And that makes sense because Dorian was actually on the remix album we talked about this year. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, that has, you know, that like that deep pounding uh, EDM combined with like really like matter of fact, almost like weird lyrics, you know, mm-hmm. on, a, on flamboyant D- Dorian got into a lot of more like gender politics and stuff like that. Often like, I think in really funny, like over the top ways of songs like, uh, called like Guy Liner and uh, Adam and Steve. Like sometimes it's like kind of like really like in your face, but I think in a good way. I don't know if Dorian really got into as much of that on this one, but even something like Sorry Bro, I Love You, which it's kind of like a basic concept, but for a track that's less than two minutes, I think that actually is like really dynamite. Yeah, and that, that was one of the standouts to me as well, um, which is actually followed up by uh, Monk Mode, which I'm not sure how much of that song I, I really jived with, and then followed by a song called Edgelord featuring Rebecca Black, which... Sure. From the clouds. Yeah, just ridiculous. She's actually been uh, growing a following on TikTok, quite popular mm. on there. Um, good for her. Yeah, definitely good for her. Uh, one of the most mocked uh, musical artists of the last decade, probably. Um, you know, I actually really liked my, the, the title track, though, My Agenda. Um, again, it had that, like, thumpy kind of beat to it. Um yeah, you, know, you get Pussy Riot, who is one of like the more high-profile co-signers of, of Dorian, obviously with Gex and Charlie yep. right behind, uh, who he toured with Charlie. Um, and then it's got that like I don't know, I don't even really know how to, how to describe it. It's kind of like a Skrillex, I guess, uh, EDM sound at the second yeah. half of of the track. Um, that like metal EDM when it pops up on here is a really welcome sound because it's so distinct and something that i i feel like is a strong suit for him um yeah i mean i i thought uh another track that stood out but <laughs> i don't know if it was really great was uh barbie boy um mm-hmm. uh, I, I thought that was like a, a decent pop song just because the uh i thought the chorus was uh fairly catchy but it wasn't a track that I really found myself wanting to go back to too much. Any Anything else that you found was good on this? Yeah, I also like F the World. The Gentleman was decent too. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think Flamboyant was tighter. Um, it just kind of, I guess like the sonics of like the song structures and stuff just kind of seem more conventional to me, even though a lot of the subject matter and the, the actual sounds uh, are kind of out there and all over the place still. But on my agenda, uh, Dorian, I think, kind of doubles down on being out there, yeah. which is cool as an independent artist, by all means. Uh, just just let it fly, you know? Yeah. And it seems like uh, Dorian's been maintaining a pretty healthy following. So I think this will be, be successful, but it kind of snuck up on me. I'm glad I, I realized this was out so we could talk about this one. Yeah, I'm glad we caught it too. Um, you know, if you listen to my agenda and then listen to the next project we're going to talk about James Blake's before EP. Um, it's very different vibes. Uh, like you said, Dorian Electra's uh, album was uh, a little bit messy, a little bit out there. James Blake, uh, a lot more peaceful, a lot more cohesive. And uh, I think well-produced would be a word that would come to mind because, you know, last time we talked about James Blake dropping a project, was in uh, 2019 at the beginning of the year with Assume Form, which I think we both walked away from feeling like this is 
definitely James Blake reaching his potential. This is him really putting it together. We'd had some some albums of his that were hit and miss with some of the songs, but this felt like a cohesive work. And before it feels like a continuation in a way of that vision and that song crafting that, that Blake is um, really, I think, refining. Uh, I, I found myself throughout kind of being like, ah, that's probably my favorite song on it. Ah, no, I think I like that one a little <laughs> bit more. That, that flourish right there was really nice. And I, I walked away impressed and just wanting more. So hopefully there's more coming. How are you feeling about this EP though? Yeah, I liked it a lot. And particularly there's two songs that really stand out to me. I keep calling the first track and do you ever the third track, those they kind of hark back to like James Blake's true roots as like a London club DJ. Uh-huh. Even though these, these songs don't actually sound like, like, you know, year one James Blake or anything, but I think with the presence of like loops in the, in the production. Yeah. Like stood out to me, brought me back like that, you know, the, and like the simps. So like, it's kind of weird or not weird, but like, it's cool to see James Blake continue to progress. Cause this definitely feels like another step forward the way assumed form did, but also not exactly like what assumed form was. So it definitely seems like James Blake is uh, in a really inspired place these days, which is pretty exciting. Yeah. And, and I think when we talked about assumed form, you know, we acknowledged that he was in a, uh, he's in a relationship right now with, um, uh, Jamila Jamil from The Good Place and they seem to have just a really supportive and, and loving relationship uh, from everything you can tell publicly obviously um, and that, that seems to be a real inspiration for some of these tracks. I, I agree Do You Ever was probably the, the number one standout to me um, but I really liked the song before and this, uh, particularly the way that he like would swell the strings up around the chorus um, I felt like that was just a really nice touch and um, it's something that I feel like if if it wasn't done well can just not have the same effect but this really gives you that like swelling emotional effect that I think he was going for but then even you know you mentioned the first track I keep calling was great do you ever I love the breakdown at the end of do you ever yeah. where it was him trading back and forth just like bars and that loop that you talked about um of you know him be like really and then like uh if you're if you're uh ever gonna whatever with me uh it it was just a really uh inspired ending yeah. and then even summer of now i thought was a solid track so not not a bad song on here in my opinion i don't think it's been publicly said if there's more coming but i have to assume we're gonna get an album in the near future yeah i think so he has not publicly said as far as i can tell there has been some other loose singles that he had released earlier this year like Godspeed. Uh, just on September 11th recently. Mm-hmm. So we're definitely getting that kind of like a piecemeal uh, approach to releases at the moment. So I, I do hope it adds up to something. Uh, probably this, this also might be another product of quarantine, you know? I mean, James Blake, not someone that released lots of albums in quick succession, soon formed just last year. But because he has nothing else to do, he just seems to be working. We knew he'd been working with like Flatbush Zombies. He's obviously a big collaborator all the time. That certainly hasn't changed. But seems like he's focusing on himself too and you know i think i keep calling do you ever these feel like the closest james blake really gets to like single potential like playlist potential with his music you know in terms of like accessible one-offs within a larger context i think that again another cool side 
to him as an artist. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I guess just to throw a quick question out there, I don't know if you even have an answer. This is off the top of my head. Uh, if, if you could see Blake, you know, collaborate with an artist right now, who would you want to see? You know, on the last one, uh, his last album, Assume Form, we had like Andre 3000, right. Travis Scott, Moza Sumney, uh, Rosalia. Um, had quite Got a few. Rosalia early. I know. Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering if someone like, like Slow Thigh, I mean, he oh. just did release a track with, with him um, on it, but maybe getting like another track that he, just huh. him and Slow Thigh. Maybe some of those like drill artists over in, in Brook, either in Brooklyn or in the UK. Eddie One, let's get it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, let's do it. Um, no, definitely. I think there's some potential. So hoping we get some interesting collabs whenever that album comes out. Uh, and check out again our Nostalgia Best of 2020 playlist on Spotify, where we did add a James Blake song and we'll be adding a Dorian Electra song as well. All right, time to talk TV. We got three big TV hits today, but I'm going to take the court. Take the ball for the first one, David. That's going to be The Haunting of Bly Manor Ooh. Uh, on Netflix. Uh, we spoke briefly last year about The Haunting of Hill House. Mm, 2018. Uh, oh, wow. Two years ago. Mm. It's interesting. Um, it didn't feel that long ago. And Hill House has really stuck with me, I think, for two reasons. One, I don't watch or I'm not attracted to a lot of scary TV shows or movies. Mm. So watching a show that was about haunting and ghosts and uh spooky stuff was rare for me um and i think i really liked haunting of hill house it wasn't a perfect show i think um some of the the narrative stuff uh got a little bit muddled and long and drawn out but i think uh the jump scares and the overall story arc in terms of like family trauma and grief and healing from that together was really really strong and I have to say, Bly Manor, I didn't think was as strong as uh, Hill House, but I still think the the touch and the, it felt so familiar and just the overall arc of the story ended, ended in a place where I felt satisfied with it. Um, you know, if there's one thing we can say about Hill House for, or Bly Manor, I'm sorry, for sure, um, it's that the acting on Bly Manor is really, really strong. And it highlights a couple of real up-and-comers. So the name that the two names people probably know are Victoria Pedretti and Oliver Jackson Cohen, um, who was in The Invisible Man. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of seems like he's on a track to stardom mm-hmm. in some sense. And Victoria Pedretti uh, was in the first season of, of Hill House. Um, it was also in the show You on Netflix, where she... Uh, in the second season, she got a lot of time and, and seems like she's going to be part of it moving forward. Um, but the people that really stood out were kind of like the the supporting performances in this. Um, you have uh, Tania Miller, who plays Hannah Gross, who's like a housekeeper at Bly Manor. Um, she was excellent. And I, I thought her episode, while being one of the most like psychotically like mind bending ones, um, her presence throughout was just really strong. And uh, then you have Rahul Kohli, uh, who plays oh. Owen. He's the cook. Yeah. He was excellent in this, had this awesome, huge mustache. And it's was a nice just look like, for him. He's yes. Been, uh, well known on social media for a while. And he had a, uh, he does not look like he does on social media a lot of the time. So he, he was a little bit unrecognizable at first, but um, he had such a charming 
presence throughout mm-hmm. um, that he he really struck me every time. And he had this one episode where his, his mother dies and he gets this like monologue about what it means to be alive, what it means to be dead and uh, really moving. And I feel like mm. this is really going to up his star, which was cool. Good. Yeah, I was just thinking. Uh, so I actually I caught about an episode and a half of this mm. when it was on where I was. And just watching it, like it seemed like awfully romantic. I think I was watching towards the beginning of the season. Is that a theme that continues? And is that like, is that a change from Hill House, or is that is it is that actually just the way these two entries in this anthology series go? Is it it's like a really grounded, like emotional uh, yeah. beats with the characters anyway? While there's so, obviously supernatural things going on. So yeah, I think it does explore the idea of love and how that plays into hauntings in both seasons. But I think the first season is a lot more about like family love, um, where this season was a lot more about like romantic love and, and, and betrayal in a sense. Um, you know, so uh, there there's a ghost that's haunting the main character, Danny, from the get-go. It's in, even in the first scene, you see this ghost, right? And it has these big bright red eyes or, or orange yellow eyes and if I, I mean anytime she looks in the mirror she sees it and you come to find out spoiler alert if you haven't watched the show it's her ex-fiance uh, or i guess deceased fiance who died getting out of a car because she, he had a fight with danny where they were when they were breaking up and she carries that guilt around with her um they explore that they explore the the ghost whose presence kind of holds people to Bly Manor, um, whose uh, husband, you know, she died back in the 1700s of, uh, I think it was the tuberculosis or something along those Adds lines. Up. Yeah. So um, her husband ends up actually getting with her sister afterwards. So she felt not only family betrayal, but uh, partner betrayal in, in all this. And that's kind of like a, a theme throughout and like, how you build relationships, how you find love, how you cherish the time that you have is a running theme throughout these, th- this story um, and, and throughout Hill House as well. I think the pacing is still a problem with this show. Mm. Um, the last like three episodes for me <laughs> of Bly Manor felt like they could have been condensed into maybe an episode and a half or maybe even one episode if, if told right. Um, and you know that there's this like woman, this uh, scary woman ghost who walks around and kills people. You see them kill uh, Oliver Jackson Cohen's character earlier in the season just by choking him out. Um, and then she drags the bodies into the lake. And that's kind of like the thing. But you don't find out about what her deal is until the second to last episode. And then the whole episode is committed to her. So you see the main character get grabbed by this ghost and then you don't actually find out what happens to that character for another whole episode, which felt Mm. it's a storytelling choice to kind of keep this a secret, but I didn't feel like I cared enough about this lady in the lake um, as an overarching like bad guy, because it was just kind of like, she's there, she kills people. We don't know why. And then it's like, here's the whole story. So it felt a bit disjointed. Do you think that the ghost is like, or at least the, the villainous ghost anyway is like superfluous to the story like it's like the least interesting part of what you're watching so seems like a problem in anything horror related yeah so it i i think like if you think about it as like a video game this is like the the big bad this is ganondorf right but uh <laughs> the the ghosts that you actually end up being more afraid of are 
Oliver Jackson Cohen's uh, Peter Quint and uh, Tahira Sharif's Rebecca Jessel, who end up falling in love but are killed. Uh, you know, uh, Peter Quint is killed by the ghost and then convinces Rebecca to let him inherit her body and then he kills her so that they can mm-hmm. be together in the afterlife. And that might be the romantic part that the episode that you saw because that's very much a um, major part of, of the, the story in the middle. And I think you're way more afraid of Peter Quint in this because he's much more present throughout. You see him kind of inheriting the body of the children in the story and being very creepy towards people. He actually kills uh, Hannah, um, the the housekeeper, while embodying the body of a child. So he seems like a lot more of like a, a menacing presence throughout. Whereas this woman, I mean, we know we're supposed to be afraid of her and the children kind of like save the adults from her. But a lot of the time, um, you know, you're not super concerned about her until mm. they make you be. Um, you know, a couple of, of things I just want to shout out before we wrap up, because I, I don't know if there's much more for me to really get into. Um, it does portray a lesbian relationship in the 1980s. And I thought what was really cool about it was they were realistic in the sense that they couldn't be like openly gay out in public, but um, there wasn't any real shame around that. And it wasn't something that was portrayed as like, you know, we have to hide this because we're gay, but more so like just the reality of cultures that we can't get married. Um, but yeah, there right. is pretty unabashed, which is, is cool. Um, and there was also, I thought, really good children performances, which is not always the case. And um, I think we're going to talk about some children performances in the third day in a second that might be up and down. Um, but I found the, the performances from the, the two children in this. I want to shout them out. Um, Benjamin Evan Ainsworth and Emily B. Smith um, to be really, really mm-hmm. good. So uh, shout out to them. And I just want to see more of this. This is a this is a fine show. You know, I, I don't leave feeling like this is the show of the year, but I'm super satisfied after watching. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I I wouldn't be surprised if another season is eventually commissioned. Uh, yeah. Also notable, this season, Haunting of Blind Manor, wrapped less than a month before uh, COVID quarantine okay. kicked in. So a show that really got in right under the radar in terms of being able to finish its production as planned. For sure. Bearing fruits. Glad that they did, um, and also glad that we got Lovecraft Country when we did, Dave. Um, you know, we talked about the first episode a couple of weeks back, 10 weeks back now, actually, yeah. and um, <laughs> we, we were pumped because, you know, you have Jonathan Majors, you have uh, Journey Smollett, um, yep. uh, and uh, sorry, uh, Courtney B. Vance, mm-hmm. um, Williams. Yeah, at the time we hadn't seen Michael Williams yet, but we knew he was coming. Um, strong cast, sci-fi storytelling. The first episode was super gripping, you know, as they're working their way through 1950s South. Um, as, as black people, it's very interesting. 60s, and, I think. Right. Was it the 60s? Okay. Post-Korea. Um, whatever, yes. Po- Post-Korea for sure. So very interesting episode and, or, and, I think it set up a lot of potential for the season. I think the the thing I I, I would say about this show, as a, as we've wrapped it up, um, it's jam packed with metaphor, with plot. Uh, every episode feels a bit like a bottle episode with like an overarching narrative. You know, kind of like a new monster or 
sci-fi story every week, which is is cool in some ways, but also it's like a lot of like downloading and learning what's happening in, in certain ones. And, you know, like there's an Indiana Jones type episode. There's a, a ghost story episode. There's a, uh, you know, fighting monsters or flying through space episode. So there's a lot of different pieces to it. And I think it, at times it just felt heavy and like just a lot to get through. Um, I don't know how, how you're feeling about it. Yeah. You know, the more I, I didn't finish it yet, but the more I watched it, the more I, kind of like I guess realize that I need to like check out on like plot investment a little bit you know it's like mm-hmm. that setup I think is quite strong because it kind of juxtaposes the two things right the real life uh villains monsters you know the racist white people of the time and the institutions that enable that and keep that going right and then the actual fictitious Lovecraftian monsters that come and go and change throughout the season. And, you know, I, I think they do a good job. It's like, well, do you, you know, remember, is that, it's actually scarier is this stuff. And I will say, I think I was obviously much more tense whenever I was watching any kind of like encounter like that. When like in episode three, like the haunted house one, where like mm-hmm. you get the, the flaming cross put on the lawn by the white people because God forbid they live in the same neighborhood, right? Right. It's like that's way more uh, tense and, and gripping than like, you know, the ghost strapped in the basement. You know, like, I don't really mm-hmm. care about that part, you know. And I, I like that they would move around. I think like the whole like doing bottle episodes to, uh, you know, not so much worry about like the A plot forward momentum. I actually really like that because that's pretty uncommon these days mm-hmm. in like, you know, like mainstream dramas and stuff. So I appreciate that. And I think they, they kind of do that structure well. But I, I don't know if the mix between like the the real bad and the fictional bad and like the works when you have like this much like really heavy handed uh, like symbolism. No, and stuff. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree, and I, I don't think there's an episode that hits that more on the head than um, episode five, which is called "Strange Case." where ruby sleeps with william brathwaite um you know mm-hmm. or is it brathwaite is that the character Braithwaite, last something like that Braithwaite, yeah. yeah and um very you know, very very white looking yes like very aryan yep. race looking motherfuckers and uh ruby sleeps with him and then wakes up as a white woman and um basically lives her life as a white woman she goes and gets a job that she's been trying to get and was overqualified to get but was now able to get because she was white during that time you know um, using her white privilege to uh, access things that she had been rejected from or neglected from and at the end basically comes around to fuck being white like I like being black and I don't want to live like this fake ass life basically is kind of where it gets to but it does feel like just so on the nose like actually like watching her like break out of the white person's skin it's kind of like i get it and like it's it, i also don't like gore a lot so i was kind of like uh, i don't need to like watch people tear through skin every every five minutes yeah. um but it really just felt like <laughs> a very like heavy-handed meta metaphor there um you know i, I think there's a couple of episodes though that really stand out as just like fantastic episodes of television the one that comes to mind for me first is rewind 1921 um while i think there's a lot of 
symbolism in this one that can be either either produce an eye roll from you or be um you know considered really heavy-handed the fact that they go back to uh tulsa in 1921 and you know are, are actually showing you how that riot started um and what you know what that was like uh for people on the ground there was uh, you know very sh- very shocking but also incredibly engaging um and i say shocking as a white male you know watching this i think right. for many black uh, americans it's not shocking it's just their daily experience and, and the experience of their ancestors um but i i thought it was well told and, and really just a fun like time like uh escape episode so sure definitely contrasts with the way Watchmen handled that last year. Yeah. I think think that's the thing too. It's like Lovecraft. It's it's entertaining usually the whole time, you know, and I think that's kind of what it was going for. And I think that's kind of what I've seen a lot of people talk about it with, where it's like maybe like the lofty mantle we tried to place it on as something, you know, with Jordan Peele's stamp of approval, Mm -hmm. Jonathan Majors in the lead, you know, was like, oh, okay. Well, this this is going to be like really prescient, and like it's prescient to a point, but because I, I think it's over the top intentionally, usually, I, I feel like it's it's hard to treat it differently than like this, just kind of how it is. Like I feel like I decided to take it like take it at face value, but it seems to be a bit of a hit for HBO. The re- this finale was the highest rated episode. I think it's its premiere is one of the if not the most watched premiere of new dramas they had this year. So uh, do you think a season two is worth it? Like they could do it, you know, they don't have yeah. to do it, but. So you not um, finishing the season. I am going to spoil something for you. Uh, it's tough because Jonathan majors won't be back. Right. Uh, Atticus dies in the final episode. Um, and the family uh, honestly ends up the way a lot of, black families in america do where the um the father figure is not present for one reason or another and usually that's because of systemic racism in some way mm-hmm. um where and the women are, are kind of the ones raising the child you know atticus has to sacrifice himself here so that his son can live um and i think a really nice way is that montrose played by michael k williams kind of gets that chance to be the grandfather and father that he wasn't to atticus and that was kind of a driving part of their uh character relationship throughout so i think where it's hard is uh it's going to be a show that if it does pick back up is going to be totally on journey smollett and it would be interesting to see if they try to pull someone else back in or maybe if they keep the same concept and do like an anthology type series Mm -hmm. where they follow other people um you know because where they also get to at the end is that uh black people are the only people that are able to have the magic that white people aren't able to have it anymore. Mm. So I'm not sure if they'd have to go maybe further back in time to explore other concepts. Um, I, I guess I'm just not sure what a second season looks like, but uh, I'd be happy to have this back because if you can get this cast again, let, let them cook. That's my opinion on it. What about you? Yeah. I mean, it also has like really strong budget production values are good, mm-hmm. you know, and, Again, like I think, I think Misha Green and crew, like the creativity was not lacking. So yeah. it, I don't think they would just rush into a season two. I'd like to think they 
would have some cool ideas. So, like again, and even if it didn't totally work for me, you got to appreciate the swing. It's definitely like a lot of other things, as we said. Yeah. Shout out uh, real quick to the episode, episode six, Meet Me in Daegu, uh, which takes place in uh, 1949, South Korea, and then uh, kind of jumps forward into the Korean War, uh, I believe. Um, a lot of the episode is in Korean, um, you know, but the fact that it explored Korean culture during that time, family relationships, and that um, Jia is the Esser character is not just like a one-off in this bottle episode, but actually comes back to play a major part in the finale at the end. Um, is is just really cool, and uh, I, I like that they take these sorts of swings. Uh, I wanted to ask you real quick. You know, we've had a couple of uh, Jordan Peele products now. <laughs> you know, after uh, Get Out everybody was buying are you still buying yeah i'm still buying come on again, <laughs> he produced this he didn't make this so this doesn't even mean that much right think about how everyone else throws their names on things as a producer jordan peele's the same way so i lovecraft country to me is very very has very little to do with my evaluation of jordan peele very much looking forward to his third directorial feature hopefully get that soon absolutely no i agree i'm still buying um Give me all the Jordan Peele stock if you're selling it. Let's jump, though, to another HBO product, Third Day, which we also talked about a couple weeks back, mm-hmm. the first episode, um, wrapped up last night, Monday, uh, 19th, you know, helmed by Jude Law, Naomi Harris, Catherine Waterston. Um, this is a very strange show and I'm going to caveat with, I'm still working my way through the final episode. So I, I don't know how it wraps up completely, but please spoil it for me, Dave. What is your opinion after seeing the whole series? Yeah. You know, I, I definitely have some admiration for it because like Love Cap Country, it's pretty unique in what it's trying to do. <laughs> and we knew this going in, but third day is specifically divided into two distinct halves, three episode halves lead protagonist in the beginning is Jude Law as he encounters OC Island and goes through quite the journey there in these three days. And then later, Naomi Harris arrives as our new lead. And then we learn quickly that she is in fact that wife that Jude Law had previously mentioned. And, you know, I... I what I think was notable is those two halves have two very different vibes. And thinking about them as a whole, like the third day, it's a pretty interesting proposition. And then, of course, you think about that 12-hour live stream they did in between the halves, which mm-hmm. I, I didn't really watch it. I looked into what it was, though. And like that's another thing that's really ambitious. Like, oh, let's watch these people on OC Island. And if we're watching at the right moment, we'll see Jude Law in the background. <laughs> it's like, that's a really, like, weird out there idea that obviously was not necessary to be watched to enjoy the season but like just the fact that they even did that and the fact that like everyone involved was like fuck yeah this is half the reason i signed on for this show like it's just it's just really cool and <laughs> it committed also, completely yeah i i also was like hmm, oc island you know i'm down to like visit this place sometime apparently it's actually a private island though and it's owned by a record producer and rihanna actually rented this bitch to record her latest album I think last year at some point. So that Are we going to get real- that album? Yeah, who knows, right? <laughs> more, more beauty products to come out first. But like, that, that was a really weird like thing to like uncover while watching Third Day. But um, 
I mean, how, how did you feel about like the distinction between the two halves? Because I think it's really stark how the show changes, right? Because in the beginning, like Jude Law, like by like the second end of the second into the third episode, he's like fucking tripping balls, and it's like this really like out there like visual show for an episode and a half, you know? Yeah, you know that first those first three episodes um, and reflecting on them, it it makes me wonder how much of that is, is supposed to be a interpret interpretation of uh, the perspective of someone who has some sort of serious mental health issue. So whether, you know, they talk about how Jude Law's character would act strange at times prior to coming to the Island would kind of just like take off, you know, possibly this is somebody who has like a bipolar disorder or, um, you know, a, like a psychotic disorder, even like a schizophrenia or something along those lines, where you're not really sure what to believe. You're not, you know, there's that feeling of like paranoia that kind of runs through those first three episodes. And, and I think that continues throughout because Naomi Harris also is quite like, what the fuck is going on here? Um, but it, it almost feels surreal a lot of the time with Jude Law, whereas I feel like even though Naomi Harris's episodes are um, still packed that paranoia they feel a little bit more grounded to me did you did you get that sense too yeah definitely and it, it was kind of cool like after the passage of time we see naomi harris's character with the kids interact with all these people we already knew or mm-hmm. further experience with jude and that was also kind of cool to me like because like oc was like so like full of life and like on the surface normal-ish when Jude Law is first getting there, you know, the festival and stuff and like mm-hmm. getting fucked up in the bar or whatever, or the, the the tavern, right? And then you see like Naomi Harris pull up and it's like, yeah, this place is actually a dump. Barely anyone lives here. What do you expect? Like, right. And like, oh, wow. Okay. But like, and then like throughout, you get like Pepper with like the like, not supernatural, but like almost like, like religious aspects, right? Like the, the deep history of like the Celtic people that used to live there. And like, you see mm-hmm. like these old like, shrines and altars and stuff and freaky shit it's like uh season one of true detective type stuff right that's a good comp yeah and but honestly like some of the dark stuff i found quite unsettling like yeah it's just like you're (laughs) just watching like just it's kind of terror like that's really all it is right it's like these people that are like super like i don't know it's it's cultish right and like right they're just super committed to uh how they are and they'll do anything and it's like the violence is 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 pretty stark and in your face yeah when uh when jude law is tripping and i i forgot to mention this before he's looking at the guy with the bag on his head who hits him in the head with the crowbar i mean that was straight out of uh the dark knight uh or batman begins right when they have the the gas from scarecrow like that that fell straight out of that and just kind of like all those visuals kind of reminded me of that very very unsettling um how did you feel about how it wrapped up that final episode i haven't watched it yet but yeah. was it was a satisfying ending to you you know i think it was because you actually get like the two halves meeting in terms of jude law and naomi harris going and you learn spoilers that that kid was not actually their son and like it's actually kind of kind of funny uh naomi harris is obviously losing her fucking shit on jude law but like she's like our kid uh, disappeared, died when he was six, ten years ago. He should be sixteen. This kid's not fucking sixteen. You're an idiot, and you're do- losing your mind again. And like, you kind of realize that like 
because like, like I think that's what's cool about the show leading up to this, right? It's like you're not actually sh- sure if Jude Law is having one of those episodes breakdowns that he had been told he had had in the past because right. as an unreliable narrator, we only can really see what we see and it's not clear. And like, again, yeah. like everyone on OC is obviously a lying shady fuck. So like you don't really know <laughs> what's right. But then you have Naomi Harris just being like, no, this is not how it is. And like your kind of relationship with what's happening. Reality. Far, I think, she, yeah, it changes permanently. Um, you know, the kids, I actually didn't mind the kids in this. Uh, the older I, one is Tandy Newton's daughter, funny enough. She looks like her. Yeah, uh, she was in the uh, the Dumbo movie. Uh, I was like, I was like I vaguely recognized her. I'd looked that up. Um, I thought she was really good. The I older did, yeah. yeah she, I, she's definitely talented and has those genes. The, the younger daughter, I wasn't that big of a fan of. Although the, the scene where, uh, you know, she's like taking care of Watterson in episode five after she gave birth and mm-hmm. then Watterson grabs the knife. Yes. Uh, that was a super tense scene. I thought really well done. And, you know, Catherine Watterson, I thought it was excellent in this. You know, like she really stood out to me. I mean, I, I expected, like yeah, I expected Jude Law and Naomi Harris to to show out and be great, but um, Watterson really surprised me. So I'm, I'm all in on her. And I also thought um, Emily Watson, who played kind of like the, the innkeeper's wife, who was yeah. mm-hmm. uh, kind of running the show behind the scenes, so to speak. I thought she was really good too. Like kind of keeping things a secret, but like really like, pulling all the strings very interesting yeah i agree i want to sh- shout out the makeup department i think a lot of this stuff early on with jude where he's like all bruised and bloody and dirty and stuff it's like they, they really showed out they had, they had a lot of fun yeah. with that you can tell um and as we mentioned in the first episode uh it's le- less uh obvious i, I actually I guess it does come up with you know harrison crew but like um there's so many instances where the two of them need to just fucking pick up and leave this cursed place but they and they're don't. being told to do that <laughs> yeah you know like, it, 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 it's something man um, <laughs> no but what it, it, i actually really like the sequence where uh jude tries to like walk back as the causeway is closing with the tides mm-hmm. and like he's like obviously they're just basically swimming and like then then Catherine waterson like pulling them back and again like because at that time you don't know what's reality and what's not is it actually a hand is being pulled back oh no it's actually a real person like those kind of touches i like you know I don't know if I was like super invested in like the OC people's angle to everything in terms of that. I think I just appreciate like kind of the atmosphere and the unconventional nature of everything. Just again, because it, it for a limited series, six episode limited series, is actually kind of does a lot of unique things. So yeah, I, I like that. I agree. Uh, check out the third day if you want something a little trippy, um, and to watch Jude Law tripping out as well. Um, and Dave, you know, some people that definitely tripped out are the defendants <laughs> in the, the trial of the, of the Chicago 7. Aaron Sorkin's um, most recent movie brought to Netflix mm-hmm. after uh, its release was pushed back um, mm-hmm. and canceled. Sold uh, by Paramount. Um, you know, well, I guess why don't we start here? Sorkin, where, how do you feel about him? Great. You love Sorkin? Big Sorkin guy, yeah. Well, what are your second... favorite Sorkin projects? I mean, they're obvious, right? It's it's a few good men, right? Like, <laughs> that shit fucking slaps. Bro. Okay, I'll give you that. That's pretty good. <laughs> um, uh, the Social Network. Yeah, like those th- those two movies right there. Yeah. Like, he's the most accomplished and one of the most famous screenwriters we have. 
you know, and he started in theater, did TV, did movies, and now he's also directing. And I think directing is, relatively speaking, one of his weaker suits. But like, he's just—I think he's cool. And like, yeah, he's he, he's polarizing to people, I guess, because he has his own specific view and that encom- that that's brought into his movies. You know, he's not in like, um, like Wes Anderson. You know, he's not hmm. like Tarantino, Oliver Stone. Like you, you know what a Sorkin thing is, right? When you hear about it, and for him, that's some obvious things, right? That that walk and talk dialogue, long tracking shots following that, also his personal politics, which are mm-hmm. kind of very idealistic, almost out of date liberal perspective, uh, permeating through the characters, and they're almost like a, a mouthpiece for. Sorkin's personal real life viewpoints. Yeah. That's pretty familiar, right? And that and all that is here again in the Charlie Chicago set. Um but also his strength just as a screenwriter with that rapid fire dialogue and just a really stro- strong ability to write sentences and conversations more often than not just makes for really engaging stuff. And for me Chicago 7 was pretty electric movie. And I really yeah, like it. especially for a movie where that's basically just a courtroom drama through and through. You know, there's a couple of scenes outside of the courtroom where it's really more like plot moving and, uh, you know, kind of building out the understanding of the, the larger situation. But the main action is in that courtroom. Um, you know, when I think of Sorkin's dialogue, I really think about him as like, or it's kind of like a cell phone, right? Because most dialogue is not boom, 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 boom. I mean, anyone that listens to this podcast know that there's a, a natural rhythm to a conversation that is not that snappy. And Sorkin just loves to have it be like like a notification on your phone. Keep giving me that serotonin one after another after another, and you're super engaged with it, and it's great. Um, I I I thought. I thought the trial of the, of the Chicago seven was really good. I, I, I think that Sorkin, you know, unlike Molly's game, which I think was up and down, but I actually didn't hate. Um, yeah, I liked it. I, I liked it a lot. I think it's quite entertaining, but you know, it has some of his flaws. Yeah. I, I think this feels like a much more cohesive movie and story that's kind of told overall. It, and you know, who really stood out to me in this movie, Sasha Baron Cohen. I mean, oh, yeah. if you didn't, if you didn't already know how, awesome this guy was as an actor i mean people know him mostly for borat for ali g um just being a ridiculous satire character he's got awesome acting chops and it almost makes me uh want to go back and get bohemian rhapsody again with him as the lead because like man man, that's that's one of the like biggest what ifs i feel like he could have crushed it as freddie definitely Um, and him playing abby hoffman in this was absolutely electric not only because he got to imbibe the movie with his humor um, and quick jabs, but then that final scene where he's on the stand and you know uh, being you know giving his, his or being cross examined by the the mm-hmm. attorney. Yes, um, I just thought that was super engaging and really drove home what Sorkin was trying to say. Now, whether you agree with his politics or not, that's up to you. But I just felt like he delivered that heart wrenching moments so well as well as that that scene right before it where you know hayden played by uh eddie redmayne is being cross-examined by rylance as like Mm -hmm. a practice and then you know abby hoffman kind of comes in and delivers the like the like heart of the movie so to speak so i thought sasha baron cohen really showed out in this 
Yeah, oh, absolutely. Um, probably the most likely to get uh, an acting nomination out of this bunch. This movie will definitely have a strong Oscars presence. Yeah, uh, it would have probably in general, but especially given the year we've just had, where mm-hmm. plus movies have come out. Um, honestly, Redmayne as Tom Hayden's pretty good casting to me because I think meta-wise, how how Tom Hayden's presented in the story kind of fits with how people view Eddie Redmayne, but. I was surprised to see Redmayne basically play somebody like straight, like down the middle. You usually yeah. think of him as playing like aloof characters or characters with ticks, you know, whether it's Fantastic Beasts or Theory of Everything, mm-hmm. whatever it is, Eddie Redmayne really plays someone who's like just kind of a guy, a normal dude, you know? Yeah. And for the more, more or less he is, he's as Tom Hayden. And, you know, I think there was room for more in terms of the ideological differences between, uh, Hayden's and Rennie Davis and then Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin like uh-huh. and I, I think you, th- that might be a uh, fault we could see with Sorkin where you kind of understand where Sorkin uh, falls in all of this right he's not super super left even though he's left you know uh-huh. and like you know like at the end where you have Hayden reading the names at the end this really rousing moving scene yeah. Uh, then you have JGL like stand up out of a sign of respect, you know, because he can be a good a good guy in the Nixon administration. It's okay that the <laughs> other guys are not all bad, right? And it's like I don't know if that adds anything. I feel like that just comes across as corny to me, even mm-hmm. though I really like the scene. Um, so like, I think most of the criticism of the movie would just kind of be where you stand on like the the personal politics of it all, you know. And it's funny. This is a movie has a very interesting path to the screen written in 07 by Sorkin, planned to be directed by Spielberg, basically killed by the writer strike that followed. And then flash forward to here, now Sorkin has cred as a, as a director. He can make it mm-hmm. himself, and that's what we got. And in the process, a lot of these themes and circumstances feel very uh, relevant to, to 2020, unfortunately, even though the movie was written 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. And it's about something from, uh, what, 1970, uh, 68, when it went in the same place? Yeah, actually, it's 68. funny when when we were watching it. Uh, Julianne, uh, friend of the pod, fiance <laughs> of one of the potters, um, said, "Is this supposed to be a social commentary on today?" And I was like, "No, <laughs> this was just written a long time ago." But I think the same, a lot of the same stuff is uh, still very relevant. Um, you know, shout out to a couple of people here: Jeremy Strong, Jerry Rubin. Mm-hmm. I thought it was super fun, very and. Fun. Uh, Jeremy Magic Strong beans, man. They they might have worked. He just loves being weird. I, I love it. That's it's so great. Um, Michael Keaton, uh, yeah. with perhaps the like stunt. I don't know if it's stunt casting necessarily, yeah. but just like what what a drop in. Yeah, out of nowhere. Pinch hit Homer. You know, yeah. Very welcome presence. You know, kind of reminds me of how late period Keaton's been going. You know, you think of like Spotlight on that. That's just mm-hmm. these are kind of the roles he does. He's more or less playing himself. But as uh, what was the name of his character? Uh, Randy Clark, the former yeah. uh, AG. I, I, a really important part of the movie, really effective scene, uh, you know, where you like kind of lose hope again as you're watching and if you don't know the real life history and having Key in there, she's just overqualified to deliver yeah. those two scenes. Um, and speaking of, uh, I don't even know if it's overqualified, but Frank Lagellia, uh, so Angela. hateable. Lengelia, sorry. Uh, so so hateable as Julius Hoffman, the judge. Oh, man. I fucking despise him by the end. Yes. And he's such a likable character, although he does do a good job of playing these, like, 
hateable men you know it, you think about him in like frost versus nixon he yeah. also just like brings the heat in that yeah. one um mark rylance accent work uh so bad <laughs> i mean he just was yeah he just was mark rylance for 90 percent of the movie but i didn't mind him man he actually had one of my uh favorite lines when they're back at the house uh, after the day at the trial and he's like uh did did any of you guys ever show up for jury duty before? i know no why, then shut the fuck there, up yeah why isn't there anybody over there that looks like us well did any <laughs> of you show up for jury duty then shut the fuck up yeah so good <laughs> delivered really well um and lastly last shout out john carroll lynch who is just like a that guy, but shows up in so much stuff and is so good. Um, I think my, my favorite John Carroll Lynch moment is in Crazy Stupid Love when he you know goes to fight Steve Carell. Just a, mm-hmm. a great scene. But yeah, um, yeah. the acting in this is great. We didn't even mention Yaya Abdul-Mateen, who didn't really get a ton to do, but in all that, all the moments he got, I thought killed it. Absolutely, yeah. I, I, that's another interesting angle to this, right? Uh, Yaya's playing Bobby Seal, and like in real life, he was eventually removed from the trial it became chicago eight down to the seven of course right and like you have that scene really powerful scene where he's bound in gag in court right which apparently in real life actually took place for about a week not just one day then he quickly gets sent out of the trial right i mean movie making but i think i mean and that's another thing with the politics angle of all it's like bobby seal's presence in the panthers but yeah at that time probably more interesting than the, the the fate that happens to the rest of the seven totally what happens you know like I, there's probably I think there's more to gain from making a movie about seal and fred hampton and we are getting yeah. a movie uh judas and the black messiah about fred hampton next year with daniel kaluuya playing fred and lakeith stanfield playing the guy who betrays awesome. him jesse plemons as a fucked up fbi agent like like i saw the trailer before tenet for the first time and really powerful you can tell is with it but how'd you feel about fred hansen like being in the movie for half a second like i didn't even recognize kelvin harrison jr playing mm-hmm. him but like like i mean the scene where like like i, I just like fucking knew he, he died as soon as like that like shit started i was like ah oh, fuck i didn't know if this is gonna be in the movie or not because i didn't yeah. really know how it lined up but like like it was like so fast almost right and like like there was definitely i think room for more with bobby seal and crew yeah no i i thought that was a a powerful presence, but just something that wasn't explored enough to really make much of an impact. Um, I did think the scene where he gets gagged in court was really well done, really powerful. Um, you know, Fred Hampton's a very interesting character. I'm glad that we're getting a movie um, to talk about his life because, I mean, by all reports, targeted by the U.S. government uh, oh, yeah. as you know, FBI a hit job. Him. Yeah, it's pretty. It's, it's fucked up shit really so um i feel like it's just something that needs to be explored more and wasn't in line with what sorkin wanted to say so yep um i don't know sorkin doesn't tell a lot of black stories i'll put it that way another thing is uh he, he's struggled or has an uneven record anyway with female characters there's not really many yeah. in this movie so he doesn't have to fuck any up you know <laughs> small victories but, play to your strengths my guy yeah but I mean, think about the movie, think about the star power of it all, right? Like, remove Netflix from the equation. You have Sorkin, who's won a Best Screenplay and has been nominated two other times. You have oh. a Best Actor winner in Eddie Redmayne. You have a uh, M- two, two people who just won Emmys and Jeremy Strong and Yaya Abdul-Mateen. Uh, you have another Best Supporting Actor winner in Rylance. Like, it is loaded with celebrated people. 
which is why, again, I think this movie is going to do well at the Oscars in April. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, It'll be interesting to see if uh, Sasha Baron Cohen goes on the uh, the campaign trail because we've never really seen him get the chance. Uh, And I would like to see what that looks like, whether he just makes a mockery of it, whether he actually campaigns for it. Yeah, and then... Oh, and Langella also was nominated for Frost Nixon, too. But the thing that what's interesting about <clears throat> Baron Cohen's case is uh, this Friday or Thursday, Borat 2 is coming out on Amazon. Borat, uh, not the same kind of performance. Obviously, will that turn voters off? As right. stupid as that is to say, who knows, right? But we'll be talking about it next week, right, Dave? <laughs> that we will. We got a lot <laughs> of shit coming up. Yeah, what, what else do we got? Yeah, so there's a lot of uh, notable, important movies coming out. We'll be talking about Kajillionaire, which is already out. We didn't get to that this week. But on top of that, we'll have uh, Borat 2, which is what called Borat sequel film, I think is the name. like that, yeah. Uh, On Prime. Uh, The Rebecca remake on Netflix. Rebecca, of course, a Best Picture winner. Remake with Army Hammer on Netflix. Uh, On the Rocks, a new Sofia Coppola movie. Her reuniting with Bill Murray once again. the Witches from Robert Zemeckis on HBO Max finally came out. A very long journey to the screen. A movie that's been uh, made before. Uh, this is an, a, a new, new version of that. And also we have the start of another HBO miniseries. The Undoing. And Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant. Kidman and uh, David E. Kelly reuniting after Big Little Lies. So, a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff. We'll be talking about it. Hit that subscribe on YouTube, youtube.com slash nostalgiapod as well as soundcloud.com slash nostalgiapod. Wear a mask. Take care of yourself. See you next week. Yeah.